0: The word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden.'" And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Aside from one verse, it's a pretty obscure prophecy tucked away in Zechariah near the end of the Old Testament. In Zechariah 9, the Lord declares judgment upon rebellious nations, and he names the usual suspects like Tyre and Sidon and the Philistines, as well as insubordinate Israel. He declares that he will cut down the pride of those nations, rob them of power, and leave the unrepentant in anguish. He is holy, and he will come in judgment upon the sinner. That's not all, though. If you keep reading, things get a little quirky if you're expecting God to be in all-out destroyer mode. In fact, they get surprisingly joyful and hopeful. He humbles the Philistines, but he spares a remnant of them. The Philistines were crying out loud. And he even removes from them false worship and adds them into Judah as part of his people. He dwells in Jerusalem. In fact, he encamps around the city for the protection of his people. He speaks peace to all nations and he sets captives free by the blood of his covenant. You know that this is happening when God Himself arrives as King, says the prophecy. And how does He arrive? Now, this is kind of the quirky part. We read in Zechariah 9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So God declares that he will arrive in Jerusalem on a donkey, not clouds of glory, not chariots of fire, a donkey. The one with power to subdue the nations, the one who comes to conquer his enemies, he will come humbly on a beast of burden as he enters the city to win that victory. So look for the humble king because he is coming with righteousness and salvation. Look for the king on the donkey. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew does us a great favor in his account of Palm Sunday, our gospel reading. While you and I are anxious to get to the hosannas and the palms and the triumphal entry, nearly two thirds of Matthew's words in our lesson are devoted to Jesus borrowing a donkey. As joyful as the crowds with their shouts and their palms are, the big point of the lesson is that Jesus is the one prophesied in Zechariah 9. He is the righteous king who sees the sin. And the sins and all of that horror among the nations, who has declared that the wages of sin is death, and that the nations and peoples will perish if they do not repent. But he is also the king foretold in Zechariah 9, who comes to deliver the penitent from sin, even the Philistines for crying out loud, and to add them all into one people, into his people. And so, in in a few more chapters, as the Gospel of Matthew concludes, he will send out his apostles to all nations, not just one or a few. On this day, then, Jesus is the king who enters Jerusalem on a donkey. He wears more than one hat that day, and the crowds get the next part right. They declare that he is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. That's quite the identification. Many of them have probably been walking with him for a while because they've been on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem and it's crammed with pilgrims who are coming for the Passover. The last thing Jesus did was heal two blind men in Jericho, restoring their sight by speaking to them and touching them. They followed him afterwards, so they're somewhere in this crowd. So Jesus has been speaking to teach and to heal and speaking God's powerful word is what prophets do. So the crowds get it right that he is a prophet. It's still funny though, this mighty prophet who can heal hails from backwater Nazareth way up north in Galilee. And despite his obvious power and authority, He's been walking to Passover in Jerusalem with all the other pilgrims like he's just one of them. Now, when he's near the city, he opts to ride into town, but again on a donkey, which is a bit like God showing up at a rental car agency and asking for a subcompact. The prophet who heals by speaking comes humbly, but he is righteous in having salvation. Back to that prophecy in Zechariah 9, though, because it tells us something else. The prophet and the king is also the priest. Remember, in Zechariah 9, he sets his people free by the blood of the covenant. Conquering kings often free their people by the shedding of blood, namely the blood of their enemies. But that's not the plan here. Jesus rides into Jerusalem to shed the blood of a sacrifice in order to spare his enemies. And you know already that it is his own blood that is shed. Just before our reading, he's told his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem to die. Now, at the Passover, he is going to be the Passover lamb whose blood is shed to deliver the world from death. So, Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, rides into Jerusalem. We should add one more thing. He's more than that. In Zechariah 9, God doesn't just say that the king will come to Jerusalem on a donkey, He says that He is the king who will come to Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God in the flesh and entering the city humbly on a beast of burden. The prophet who has been teaching the people is the one who created everything by speaking. The one who has declared his wrath for the sins of the nations is coming to shed his own blood for the salvation of the people's. All of human history and destiny pivots on this journey to Jerusalem as a shout of Hosanna, save us now, rightly proclaim. Behold, your God is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. And again, he comes humbly. Maybe that's the part that throws people off. Why would God be humble? Why would he deign to take on flesh and walk among sinners for years? Why would he endure the rebellion up close and at his own expense? Why would he consent to die in their place? He certainly deserves better. You have those descriptions in Isaiah and revelation of the Lord enthroned on high, surrounded by the saints and the hosts of heaven, all of whom fall down and worship and ascribe to him all blessing, glory, honor, power, might, and more. Not because they have to, but because they delight to acknowledge what is so obviously true and good. You heard Jesus say that the first and the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He most certainly deserves that love, but remember why he commands it. It's not pride. It is not because he is egotistical and insecure and that he must have your unquestioning loyalty to feel complete or good about himself. He commands it because anything less than total love for him means that you're directing your love to something else in his place that cannot give you life. And that something, whatever it might be, is a corruption that will spread and fester and eventually destroy you. In other words, when the Lord calls for your love and obedience, it's not for his good, it's for yours. It's not because he is proud, but because he is loving. And because he is loving, sacrificially loving, he comes humbly to Jerusalem. When the crowds cry out, Hosanna, save us now, he continues into the city to answer their prayer and to save them By his suffering and death. Even if their cries of, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will turn to crucify him within days. Even if they misread his humility as weakness, then mock him for his love as he chooses not to come down from the cross. So you hear this story as Advent begins, and do not forget that Advent is a penitential season. Rather than a festive run-up to Christmas, so that we're distracted and nearly exhausted by cheer before arriving at December 24th, it is a time to reflect upon your need for repentance, your need for the Savior's incarnation. It is a time to reflect, among other things, on the humility of Jesus. You witness it not just with a donkey on Palm Sunday. You see it in his first bed— A food dish for cattle because there's no room in the inn. And rest assured that God could elbow his way into the best suite if he chose. You see his humility and his willingness to be baptized with sinners. To suffer temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. To wander and teach and heal with no place to lay his head. To accept all manner of false accusations as his own and bear those to the cross. To suffer and to die for sinners. The more you see the humility of Jesus, the more you see that you have no room for pride. You have no place to insist upon your own way. You have no reason to believe you deserve more than you have. You have no excuse to think that you're due more respect than you get. You have no reason to consider yourself better than others. Now, none of that sounds pleasant to the old Adam, but if you are free from pride, then you are free. So repent. Examine yourself for pride and confess it for the corruption that it is. And always, behold Jesus. Behold, the prophet from Nazareth comes to you. The one who humbly chose to spend time with the sick and possessed, the one who spoke afflictions and demons away by his powerful word, that one comes to you as near to you as his word. He speaks your sins away with his word of absolution, cleansing you and declaring you holy. And when you fall prey to temptation again, He doesn't proudly retort that he's already helped you out enough. But humbly, he speaks his forgiveness to you again. And again. And again. If someone is not forgiven, it is not because Jesus has stopped speaking, but because the other has stopped hearing. Behold, your priest is coming to you. The one who sets captives free by the blood of his covenant, he sets you free from sin with his body and blood, his testament of life and salvation for you. His supper is not some shrink-wrapped snack trade reminder that you ought to be good, but humbly the Lord himself comes to visit you in, with, and under bread and wine. This Advent season and always, remember the humility of God. Remember the donkey and the entrance into Jerusalem, all for the purpose of dying to redeem. Remember that he is risen from the dead, and though enthroned in heaven and worshipped by all the hosts there, in his humility he still comes here for you. Behold Your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.